grateful for uh, our band and, and the songs we sing. And uh, I just, I, as I was singing, His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I, I was thinking about how often we come together to worship as a body of Christ. And don't sometimes we quench the spirit with our guilt and shame that because we feel how the depth of our sin, that there's no way that God wants my praise right now. There's no way that God wants my worship right now. How can I even approach the purity and perfection of God's word when I've been such a sinner in these preceding seven days? And we should feel the weight of our sin. Sin should bring guilt and shame. But for those who are in Christ, it shouldn't remain there. For those who are in Christ, we, we are delivered from the guilt and shame of our sin because Jesus has taken those sins on himself. And so we get to come into our time together this morning forgiven if we ask for forgiveness. He is faithful to forgive. And so I, I just want to challenge you that right now you may be here this morning and working through those feelings and emotions and theological difficulties. And I, I, I want to ask you, I want to I even maybe beg you right now that for the sake of yourself and for the sake of our congregation that you would ask God for forgiveness, knowing full well that he forgives. <laughs> Let's approach our time in the word with the certainty of God's love for us and that his mercy is more. Well, today is, is a special day. Um, I hope all of you woke up to breakfast in bed with eggs and bacon and um, all the chocolate milk, I don't know, orange juice. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but it is a special day because it is Father's Day. Uh, and dads, your work is special. Your work is special. So many of, of you families know it, that the work of fathers is a special work. Uh, some of you are only able today to remember your dad, and I, I recognize and acknowledge that there's pain associated with loss and nostalgia of what good has been in your life that has been taken, but praise God for the good father he gave you, even if it was just for a time. And I recognize that there's also pain associated on a Father's Day because some of you didn't have a good dad. Some of you have dads who neglected their special work in your life, whether by hurting you in presence or in absence. And I want you to know that you're not alone in that either. So whatever pain you, you may experience today with Father's Day, you're not alone in that, and it matters. For those of you here today who are dads, I want to just encourage you and say thank you to you. Loving your family well as you follow after Christ is one of the great callings on the lives of men. We know from Paul that not everyone is called to be married. Not everyone is called to be a father. But for those of you who are, God has given you a great task, a special task of loving your family well. And I'm, I'm so grateful for you. And I know that your families are grateful for it. How many families, are y'all grateful for your dads this morning? Some of you feel grateful for your dads this morning? Yeah, we can clap for that. Yeah. I am, I am not just saying that here. I, I really do believe that we are blessed at Provision Church with just a bunch of really good fathers, a bunch of really good dads who are following after Christ and loving their family sacrificially, loving their family well, Dad, I, I, I've, already, I've already said this, but it's a mighty task that God has called you to of loving your wife and children. Much like God, as the chief shepherd, calls men to be under shepherds for the church, God, as the true father, calls men to be earthly fathers for a time. In many ways, every father is something of an under shepherd to their tiny church, the church of their home, when, when they're loving their family. So it's, it's no small thing, and we shouldn't take it as a small thing. We could just see it as biological. Well, everyone who has a kid becomes a dad. Well, and God has created that biological thing with a responsibility, a beautiful responsibility of loving and caring. 
And I, I believe it's a task that's, that's too much. I think it's a task that no one can do perfectly. None of us are up to it. But yet, I look around and so many of you are serving your families so well. Serving your family faithfully. So I would say today is a perfect day for you to hear me say, good job. Dad's good job. Keep up the good work. Keep working hard and sacrificially to love your family. And it's a good day to receive that love from your family. Families, make sure that you're encouraging your dad, not just today on Father's Day, but regularly. Look for ways, kids, to encourage your dad. Even if your, your dad is, uh, an, if, even if you're an adult and your dad is uh, a grandparent now, look for ways to encourage. And, and, and kids, wives, look for ways to encourage dads, husbands all the time. And it doesn't cost money to make a dad feel great. Doesn't it cost money to encourage him? So let's just make that a habit. God has called us to be encouragers. So dads, don't undervalue yourself. Don't undersell your influence. You are needed in your kids' lives no matter their age. So make yourself a priority in their lives and keep, keep it up. And if, if you're feeling like, you know, I'm not a dad doing great work right now, you're probably doing better than you think and you can always improve. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't here on Mother's Day, I'll just leave that one. <laughs> At the end of chapter 1 in Titus, in Paul's letter to Titus, Paul warned Titus against false teachers. So if you're not there with me, flip over in your Bibles to the book of Titus, the letter of Paul to Titus. It's right after 2 Timothy, right before Hebrews. And in the first chapter, we, you can walk through it and see that Paul gives qualifications for elders. Here's what men who lead the church should be like. Here's how they should be qualified. And then right after that, he says, now, here's men to look out for. Here's what false teachers look like. We, we get kind of a small list there. The, the qualified men are above reproach, not quick-tempered, lovers of good. We see that the false teachers um, should be silenced and rebuked. They're deceptive, divisive, insubordinate, legalistic, disobedient. There's a clear distinction between faithful teachers and false teachers. Paul presented the attributes first of the faithful, then of the false teachers. But now in chapter 2, Paul transitions. He's, he's walking back. He says, but as for you, it's, a, it's again a comparison, a contrast of the false teacher versus the faithful teacher. That false teachers are divisive and subordinate, but as for you, Titus, since you are not one of those, as you are not a false teacher, as you are a qualified man to be elder, as for you... He says, teach sound doctrine. Now that you've heard these attributes of these false teachers who will destroy the church, let's turn our attention back to the positive traits of church leaders. That, that's the direction Paul's taking us, the positive traits of church leaders. Let's look at what makes a church ordered and healthy. It, it's the purpose of Paul's letter. If you go back to the beginning of Titus, in the very first few verses, in verse 5, he says, I'm leaving you, Titus, there to put what remains in order. So all of these instructions are about Titus putting the church in order. It's instructions for the church of what an orderly and healthy church looks like. And let's just go ahead and read. We're going to read down to verse 8 today. So look at chapter 2, verse 1, and this is what God's Word says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, 
dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul tells Titus here to be like the qualified men and proclaim things consistent with sound doctrine. That's verse 1. Proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. And then he launches into this list of what he should be teaching, of what sound teaching really produces. Verses 2 through 8 are what is consistent with sound teaching, sound doctrine. And when we say sound doctrine, I mean, that, that can feel really maybe churchy, but sound doctrine is really just healthy belief. Sound, in, in, in the original language there, healthy is a word that would coincide with that. It's healthy belief, healthy teaching. It's right, it's good, it's unwavering truth. These are the things that stand. It's sound doctrine. So as we look at this sound doctrine, this healthy beliefs, we see that these healthy beliefs are proven by healthy actions. If we're teaching healthy belief, healthy truth, then that should be followed by actions that give evidence to that belief. If we are internalizing, if it is transforming us, then it is showing itself. Beliefs and actions go together. It's one of the primary themes of Titus, that we shouldn't just be theological giants. Uh, we're, we're called to daily obedience. We're not just called to, to get fat on knowledge. We're called to be obedient to Christ. Truly, knowing more about God in the Bible than anyone else in the world is worthless without obedience. That we should be a people excited to know and love God and then to obey what we know about him, to, to obey what he has called us to. So Paul gives Titus an instruction to teach what is consistent with healthy beliefs, what is consistent with sound doctrine. And what are those instructions? They're expectations for godly living. It's as if Paul is telling Titus, by teaching sound doctrine, you will be teaching how to live. By teaching sound doctrine, you will be teaching how to live. I, I, I feel this way a lot in the Bible of just how I wouldn't have written things. You probably heard me say it. I wouldn't have written things this way. If, if I were writing this and it said, and I had said, teach sound doctrine, I would have gone into these things great theological concepts. That's where my mind goes. But here, Paul is, is directing us in a specific direction that we continue to be grateful that Mark Navy didn't write the Bible, but that God did, and that the direction is not these rich theological concepts, though we build out of those th th uh, rich theological concepts. The direction is, is healthy living. It's living after Christ, following after Christ in our lives. So chapter 2 is really all about discipleship. How do we follow after God in our lives? Titus should be instructing men and women towards what we're going to see here in these next seven verses, instructing them towards these traits, and in turn, these men and women should be instructing other men and women. It's, it's discipleship. It's making disciples who make disciples. And here we get some really helpful tools for discipleship. I'm going to give you actually in this text I think we can pull out really five discipleship needs, five keys to discipleship. And that first one comes in verse one, that for discipleship to be fruitful, for, for discipleship to follow after Christ, it needs to be doctrinally sound. We need doctrinally sound discipleship. Look at verse one again. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Discipleship isn't, that isn't based on biblical truth isn't discipleship. It's something else. It's, it's influence. It's, it can be a number of things, but it's not biblical discipleship. Biblical discipleship must be based on biblical truth. To make disciples as Jesus commissioned us to do, to go and make disciples of all nations, to make disciples as Jesus commissioned us to do, we must make them as he wishes them to be made. Right? If we go around making disciples in our own image, by our own liking and our own design, that, that honors Christ in no way. That elevates me. That, that idolizes myself and my thinking. True discipleship makes disciples in the image of Christ. Further, if we train men and women in lies about God, if it's not biblical and it is a lie about God or what God desires, if it's a lie about God and themselves, 
then we're in fact disobeying God, even if we think we're doing what is right. So true discipleship must be doctrinally sound. It's a serious issue. God considers doctrinally sound discipleship very serious. If we, if we don't disciple well, if we disciple in, in an unsound way, if we teach wrong doctrines, wrong teachings as we disciple, it will cause people to stumble. That's, that's the result of poor doctrine is sin. It will lead to sin. It will lead to rejecting God's plan and God's design. Uh, as I was preparing for this, one of the things that I kept thinking about was when Jesus told the disciples to let the little children come. Like it, it takes the faith of a child and that if someone keeps a child from coming to him, if someone stands in the way or is a stumbling block, it would be better for them to have a great millstone fastened around their necks and be drowned in the depth of the sea. It's in Matthew 18. God considers it very serious to be a stumbling block for others as they pursue, pursue Christ. So we should take that seriously as well. And as God has called each of us to be disciple makers, we should take our doctrine seriously. We should take our understanding of God's word seriously. Verse 7 in Matthew 18 says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Church, we need to be doctrinally sound. We need to disciple with sound doctrine. So many people are being lied to today about what honors God and dishonors him. In, in what I would say are so-called churches, people are tickling ears and giving paths to lives that dishonor God rather than lives that honor him. So Matthew 18, 7 says, Woe to them. Be doctrinally sound, church, as we disciple. The, the next thing we see in this passage is that, that Paul calls discipleship to happen through word that we have to speak discipleship into each other. So it happens, it happens doctrinally sound. It needs to be doctrinally sound. It also needs to happen through word. Paul tells Titus here in the passage to teach. He tells the older men to urge the younger men. That happens through words. We urge through our words. Older women are to teach what is good. He admonished them not just towards good living, but also sound speech. Discipleship must happen through the clear, written, and spoken word. So, church, look for ways to disciple others with your words. I think encouraging dads today is a great step in that process. That discipleship is not just all correction and rebuke, though it is. It's also encouragement. So how can we be encouragers to each other? We have to do that with, with our word. I won't stay there long. We do see that example there. But we also see here that discipleship needs to happen through example. It needs to happen through example. And this is the thrust of the text. Older men must set the example of sound doctrine. They need to set the example of sound doctrine lived out. Older women must set the example, not just of knowledge, but of action. That's the call here in Titus 2, a call to action. Titus is to show himself, we see in verse 7, as a model. Show yourself as a model, modeling yourself through example. It's impossible to disciple biblically without modeling obedience. If all you do is use your words to try to disciple someone, you will not be an effective disciple maker. You have to model obedience to Christ. Look in verse 2 how God calls older men to behave. Look at this. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and then they're supposed to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. And then what about women? And just the next verse over, women are supposed to be reverent in behavior. You see that there's an action there, not slanderers. So what are we seeing even in their speech and not slaves to much wine? So remember, Paul is, is exhorting Titus to raise up a church that is countercultural. At the end of chapter one, Paul is, is kind of letting the Cretans have it. I mean, we, we call people Cretans even now. I mean, they were liars and they were deceptive. You're saying, don't be like them. Be like what Christ has called you to be. So he's, he's teaching them, don't be like your culture. Be like Christ. So sound doctrine, biblical teaching, produces biblical living. Sound doctrine and biblical teaching doesn't produce comfortability being like your culture. It produces comfortability being like Christ. That should be our aim and our goal, is biblical living. Where the Cretans would be drunk and high, Christians should be 
sober-minded. They should have an accurate perception of reality in themselves. Where, where the culture elevates what's gross and disgraceful, Christians should be dignified. Where the culture does whatever feels right in the moment, Christians should exercise self-control. Paul is calling them to godliness, to Christ-likeness. Followers of Jesus in a worldly culture are called to be unshakable. I love the phrasing of they should be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Every man, shouldn't we memorize that verse? Shouldn't we put that in us so that we aim for that? That we would be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Some of, your, some of your translations might use the word endurance instead of steadfastness. You get that idea of we, we're able to stand, we're able to be strong, we're able to be unshakable for Christ. There's a sturdiness to it, a steadiness to it. We should be sound, especially in our faith, love, and endurance. When I think of someone sound in the faith, I think they're someone without a doubt. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what God says is true. Faith is being certain of what we hope for, sure of what we cannot see. I cannot be convinced otherwise. I am convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his word is infallible and sufficient and that it is authoritative for my life and I will not be moved. Sound in faith. We believe that. We won't, we won't be moved. They're not going to... They're not going to change their mind at the whims and tides of culture, but in their faith they are certain and strong. What about sound in love? Someone who's sound in love, they're not going to stop loving you because they're sound in love. Their love is founded and based in something more than passing trends. Their love for you and for others is founded in the unchanging and eternal love of God. Because God loved us first, we love we're sound in love that, hey, older men have loved their wife, wife's, wives and children because they have been loved by Christ. So they're sound in love. There was never a question whether their love was wavering because their love was based on something more than what their wife could get, give them or what their children could provide for them. Their love was based in their love for Christ. Sound in love, sound in steadfastness. What does it mean to be sound in endurance? Doesn't the Christian life take endurance? Isn't it, isn't it a marathon so often? And it's remembering that Christ is worth it. Sound in steadfastness is remembering that Christ is worth it in the most difficult and most mundane places. I think a lot of us in moments can withstand difficulty but what about the long haul of mundane following after Jesus? This is boring. I don't want to do this anymore. I want excitement. I want something more. Be steadfast. Endure through the mundane. Endure through the hard days. Do the hard work. Sound in steadfastness. This is what Christ has called his people to, the older men in this text. How can we grow more men like that? How do, we, how do we do this? How do we grow more women who are reverent in behavior, who, who are not slanderers? You see, I mean, a lot of, lot of crossover here in what these roles are about. Not slanderers, that, that they're self-controlled with their mouths, that they talk well of others, that they're encouragers. Not slaves to much wine, that they're self-controlled with their body and their uh, temptations, that they're willing to give more to Christ. I mean, there's so much crossover in what these expectations are. How do we grow more men and women like this, unshakable, sound, certain, undoubting? What's the plan for helping young believers grow into this strong faith? It's intergenerational investment. That, that's, that's what is given here as the command is that generations should be investing in generations. Older believers aren't supposed to hoard their knowledge that leads to obedience. Think about the wisdom that is gained over years, the experience that is gained over years should, should flow out like a refreshing stream to those who are eager to learn, to the wise, to the younger wise. Older believers should be 
streams of knowledge, streams of obedience. We're called to pass the baton of faith, to bring others along, to encourage others along. So an important key to discipleship is intergenerational. Discipleship needs to be intergenerational. Now, not all discipleship has to be intergenerational, but everyone needs intergenerational discipleship. Do you see that? That you can have people in your life that are your age, your contemporaries, investing and discipling in you. That's healthy. That should happen. We see examples of that. But here in this text, there's a specific call to intergenerational discipleship, which should be happening. I think a high schooler can absolutely disciple another high schooler. I think a 20-year-old can disciple a 40-year-old. But the common transmission of discipleship, what we see in an orderly and healthy church, is from old to young, intergenerational. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you a second one that we see in this text. Not only intergenerational, but there needs to be gender-specific discipleship. That God has called us to gender-specific discipleship. So not all, just like age, not all discipleship has to be gender-specific. I mean, obviously, since half of you in this room are not the same gender as I am, and this is discipleship, but everyone needs gender-specific discipleship. That's the call of this text. So we, we get this description of what older men and older women should be. And then in verse four, there's a, there's a, there's a command that comes behind that to those older women specifically. And then we'll see the older men too. But verse four says, and so train the young women. So the older women are called to so train the young women. It's intergenerational and gender specific. Do you see that discipleship happening there? That call in an orderly and healthy church. This is a call for Titus to teach intergenerational and gender-specific discipleship. God has a purpose and a plan for generational investment within the two genders. Because God made men and women uniquely, because our bodies and roles are different, there's a special need for men to be invested in by men who have already lived as men for Christ. And there's a special need for women to be invested in by women who have already lived as women for Christ, who have already gone through things and seen things and experienced things as men, as women. Titus 2 spends a bit more time here pointing to the female aspects of discipleship than the male aspects, but through the rest of the book, we see so much information given on men. It makes sense that this would have a little more emphasis on the role of women and women's discipleship But look at what he says. Look at what he specifically highlights here for female discipleship. Older women are to teach younger women to, and then we get a little bit of a list, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be working at home, to be kind, to be submissive to their own husbands. It's clear from this that Paul wasn't afraid of your culture. (laughs) He wasn't afraid of his culture, but that wasn't controversial in his culture. Paul wasn't afraid of your culture. He's not afraid of any culture because he's speaking God's word. The words of prophets are not words of their own. They're words of God. And so here he's only delivering that information. And as much as Paul isn't afraid, neither am I. And I hope you aren't either to, to look at God's word and say, I'm, I'm good with that, God. I'm good with what you say. I think submission gets to be a scary word, a bad word. But submission is a trait of the Christian life, not just for women, but, but for every Christian that we're all called to submission. We're going to see in verses 9 and 10 next week in Titus that he calls even slaves to submission. That this is just a part of the Christian life that we might be submissive to those in authority. I, I saw a, a Facebook post recently, and I don't know if it came from any of you, so, so no shade if it did, but it, it was a, a post that said, obedience isn't a virtue. And it was, you know, it's a political post. But I think generally, I don't know how to define, I didn't do research. I don't know how exactly how you define a virtue, so maybe it's actually not. But obedience is a virtue in the Christian life. Like we should, we should aim for obedience. We should aim for submission. We should aim to, to, to please those in our lives. So we, we see submission, which is a scary word here. We see working at home, which is a scary phrase here. But God, God's word praises these ideas right up there with love and kindness and self-control. And do you think God cares about the condition of your home? Yeah, he does a lot. God cares about your home a lot. And he, he has things to say about how your home operates. And we can either submit to him in that. We can either obey him or we can buck up against it. And we can say, no, God, not for me. But we're going to find way more joy in Christ, 
We're going to find way more joy in this life he's designed for us if we say, yes, God, for me too. He's called moms and dads, husbands and wives, to be engaged and working for the good of each other and their family. That's what we're seeing in this text. He has called husbands and wives to be engaged and working for the good of each other and their family. Paul paints the picture of a woman here who supports her home with godliness. That's, that's the image that, that I hope you see here, is a woman who is supporting her home, her kids, her husband, with godliness. In a culture, remember, he's writing to the Christians in Crete, and Crete is not much different than the United States. It's not much different than really anywhere in the world where people want their way. They don't want what God wants. And here he's talking to this culture and he's saying, look, this culture wants you to love yourself more than anything. Can we we agree with that? This culture wants you to love yourself, me first. He's saying, no, love your husbands and children. And I think it's in that order too. It's 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 not an accident that he calls wives to love your husband and then your children, that your children thrive in a setting where they're seeing the love of Christ between husband and wife. So love your husband, love your children. In a culture where self-control is thrown out, do what you want, follow your heart no matter the cost. Don't worry about the person next to you. God teaches us that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So it's obviously a priority for God in our lives. It's counterculture, but that's what he's calling these women to. These women who support their home with godliness love their husbands and children first. They, they are self-controlled. He calls them to purity. Purity, what is pure in our culture? Is there anything anymore? But here, it's not just a call to sexual purity. It's a, it's a purity of mind and heart that we would want what God wants that we would look for our life to be holy, to be set apart. We want what is good and undefiled, that a wife in her home, a a young mother in her home, wanting what is good and undefiled for herself and her family. So we see then the call to be working at home or or busy at home. That doesn't just mean housework or being a homemaker. It, It it generally means not to be lazy, but to be at work. That older women teach younger women to be at work. And specifically here, that work would have mainly been in the home. But it's not just a cultural thing, well, that's not the culture anymore. Women should be at work in the home. Now, I don't think this means that husbands shouldn't be at work in the home. <laughs> this isn't saying that women get to be so that men don't have to be. But it's, it's what should we teach? I, I will teach you today that Men, young men, you should be at work in your home as well. Men, if you're not working in your home, you are letting your family down. But that's true for women too. We should be able to say that. Here, older women, you should be teaching younger women how to be at work in their home. Paul is affirming the goodness of young women being at work in their homes. I think it's it's clear here, and it needs to be elevated, that the work of women in their homes is valuable. That as the church needs order to be healthy, so does the home need order to be healthy. And so that's, that's, that happens in marriage. In marriage, how do we figure out how to have order in our home? Well, part of that equation is what older women train younger women for, being busy at home, working at home. But in working, there also comes exhaustion and stress and anxiety. Isn't that, I think about for myself, when I feel the most frustrated and um, unlikable is when I'm exhausted and stressed, especially from work. And I think that's why here you see very next after working at home is kindness. Train them to be kind because it can be exhausting. Can can it be exhausting? I mean, I I think about, I'm looking around at a lot of mothers and motherhood is exhausting. Fatherhood is exhausting. Isn't fatherhood exhausting? This command is not only, again, just for women, but men, we have a call to kindness as well. No matter what is happening, as we work, we should be kind. So older women should train younger women to be kind. Kindness combats the anxiety and stress of work and labor. Kindness is an easy one, though. 
It's fun to teach kindness. Everyone needs to be kind. We learned that from Barney. It's fine. But then the next one, how do we submissive to their own husband? Submissive to their own husband. I think the language of that is very important, that women are not called to be submissive to other men. They're called to be submissive to their own husband. So this isn't uh, creating levels in society where men are more important than women. It's giving roles in your home. How does a home operate? Well, in God's design, we see men are the head of their homes, not other men. It defines here the role of husbands and wives in the home. Ephesians 5 says this. I mean, this isn't something that we just find in one place. This is a common thread in the New Testament for, for how families and homes should, should work. Ephesians 5 says that wives should submit to their husbands. We can find that exact phrasing in Ephesians 5. But, but look at how it talks about husbands in Ephesians 5. It says, husbands should love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't know there's ever a time where I'm going to preach these passages without preaching them together. (laughs) That women should submit to their husbands, yes. But what should the husbands be like as wives submit? They should be like Christ to the church. Did Christ lord over the church? Did Christ demand unfairly from the church? No, Christ gave himself for the church. Submission is easy when Christ is laying his life down for us. I don't at all mind laying my life down for Christ. I I don't at all mind submitting to the call of Christ in my life because he is actively loving me. He is actively caring for me. He is never asking anything of me that is for my bad or for my harm. He is only asking of me what is good for me in my love for him. Right. So so as, as I'm following the commands here, older women should be, yes, teaching women to submit in their home as husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. These roles don't demean women, they, they elevate them. Men and women are equal partners with different roles. That God has given roles to men and women in, in the home. And I think submission in marriage is is a, it's not an easy topic. Like, I wish I could say here, sit here and give you the list of, well, here's all the questions you should submit to, and here's all the things that you shouldn't submit to. I, I, I think, like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about going to dinner here? Like, we, I, I wish I could submit to my wife on where to go to dinner sometime for Father's Day, baby. <laughs> you could choose dinner tonight. Um, but what do, we, what do we submit to here? Is it, hey, I think it's time to pick up and move, and your wife disagrees? Well, you need to submit. Like, how does, how does some of that work? It always works in cooperation. It never works in lording over and domineering. It always works as the husband prays with his wife for the will of God. And if there's a decision to be made, then the wife in a spirit of submission says, I'm willing to follow. Doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. Doesn't mean that you're belittled. It doesn't mean that you're demeaned. It means that God has roles in, in the home. So older women this responsibility to teach these things to younger women, that responsibility is given to you. If I feel clumsy talking through that, I might be a little clumsy talking through that. The instruction is for older women to teach through that. So I would gladly recommend to you, young women, if you're like, I don't think Mark really explained what submission looks like in the home, find an older woman and ask her. It's her job anyway. No, no, really, I I want to present that clearly with you. I really do. I want to present that clearly with you. I I hope you have an idea. But truly, but truly, we are thankful that God has given us uh, how this should work, that, that, that gender-specific intergenerational discipleship provides even more clarity, a greater uh, place of advice. What about in difficult situations? Who do you call? It, hey, I don't know what to do here. My, my husband is asking me for this, and I don't know that I should submit here. I would much rather you, young woman, call an older woman than to call me on that. God has given us a pattern for discipleship and for the home. Older women are responsible to teach these things to younger women. I shouldn't do that. Women need to practice 2 Timothy 3.16 with each other. And older men are given a a similar responsibility here. I mean, again, verse 6 doesn't have a lot to say. (laughs) Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. The likewise says a lot. Right? That this, this command for older women to invest in younger women is also a command for older men to invest in younger men. So, yeah, they should see you working at home, younger men to older men. That They should see how you're self-controlled. 
I, I, I believe that self-control here is, is specifically singled out because for young men, self-control is so central to following after Christ. How many young men suffer not following after Christ, instead pursuing worldly pursuits because they lack self-control, primarily? So older men, what gift, what's the greatest gift in, in pursuing Christ that we can give a younger man? I think it's helping them learn self-control. And I say that as a 31-year-old who has not perfected self-control. And I would imagine that the older you get, you can probably still say that. I've not perfected it. But that should be the goal of older men. The goal of older men should be to continually be perfecting self-control, to be more like Christ in my self-control. Who was perfect at self-control? Only Jesus. <laughs> he had perfect self-control. So in our sanctification, we become more and more like him. So older women invest in younger women. Older men invest in younger men. Help them to be self-controlled. But, but why? What is the goal of discipleship here? What do we see as the goal of discipleship here? Well, I want to give you three goals of discipleship. I'll give them to you all at once. One is surrendered self. A goal of discipleship is surrendered self. That no longer are you in control of yourself, but that control of self is given to God. That you say, God, I'd rather you be in control than me over even my own self. Second one is surrendered relationships. That God, I want you to be in charge of my relationships. My hopes and dreams for friendships, marriage, whatever it is. God, I want you to be in charge of that. I want you to be in control of that. I want to surrender that to you. And then the last one is surrendered mission. That God, I want the mission of my life to be the mission you give me. I want to surrender all of these things to you. We see all of those things here in Titus 2 of what we've seen so far. We've seen a surrendered self. What, what do I want to do? I want to be like the Cretans and get my way every time. I want to do exactly what I want every minute of every day. But I surrender myself so that now I'm self-controlled, so now that I'm sober-minded, so now that I love my family above even myself. So surrendered self, we see in this text. I, I, we see that in other texts too. Luke 9 teaches us that. It's a verse that I quote often when Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. It's surrender of self. Following after Christ takes self-surrender. I and mean, this is a goal of discipleship. The more we grow towards like Christ, the more we will be, uh, the more we will be less of ourself. So we, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross daily, and we follow after Jesus. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That, that we, are, we are God's. We are not our own. So we see that surrendered self. We also see surrendered relationships. Uh, how much here in this description of loving your husbands and children, this, this instruction from older women to, to younger women, how much of this is surrendering that marriage relationship? To say, God, I want your way. We know that the, the curse on Adam and Eve was that men and women would, would be combative in their roles that no longer would that happen naturally and easily, but that men and women as husband and wife would, would want what each other has. And so Jesus, we're learning here in Titus that even in marriage, we need to surrender relationships to Christ. I, I think about Matthew 12 when I think about those surrendered relationships. Matthew 12, Jesus' family comes to see him at the temple, and someone's like, hey, Jesus, your family's here. And Jesus said, well, who's my family? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he pointed to his disciples. And he said, here's my mother. Here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Isn't, isn't one of the goals of discipleship for us to surrender our relationships to God? That we see our relationships in light of the gospel? That we want out of our relationships what God wants out of our relationships? We need, we need we need people alongside of us pointing it when we don't surrender our relationships, when we don't surrender parts of our relationships. And then surrendered mission. I think we see surrendered mission a lot when you, when you come to, to the end of verse 5. We're, we're just being taught that older women should train these younger women. Uh, and then at the end of verse 5, it tells us why. 
that the word of God may not be reviled. What, what's the mission? Why, why, why does living out of sound doctrine matter? Because we care about what God cares about. Because we want to go after God. We want to glorify God. We want his name to be hallowed. We don't want his name to be rejected and spat upon because of our poor behavior, because of what we do. So here, we follow after God. We surrender our mission. My main mission in myself and in my relationships is not my good, it's God's good. And as we surrender to him, his good is our good, whatever the cost. We love what he loves. So we surrender our mission. Verses seven and eight get to the same principle. Show yourself in all respects. So here, Paul's transitioning back to Titus. Show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Why? That they, that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Paul's concerned about how the outsider sees the Christian because everyone before they're a Christian is an outsider. Right? And, and the goal of Christ is to take those who are far from Christ and to make them family, to take strangers and make them family. So we surrender our mission. Here it says in verse 8 that, that we're called to this model. We're called to integrity and dignity and sound speech so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I think we forget sometimes that an opponent here in verse 8 is someone who needs Christ. Here, he's not referencing the devil or Satan. He's referencing someone who needs Christ, who's skeptical about the claims of Christ, of, of being Lord. The mission of sin is to satisfy the flesh. That's the mission of sin. And we give into that mission often as humans. But for the church, our mission is always the mission of Jesus. And what is the mission of Jesus? It's Luke 19.20. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' mission is to seek and to save the lost. Have we surrendered our mission? How, how often is our mission just only temporary things. If I could just make a little more money, if I could just have a little more influence and power, if I could just have this thing or have this person, then I would be good. But Christ has said, your mission is me. Your mission is to seek and to save the lost, to, to, to bring them to be good stewards. He came, Jesus came to save those who were his enemies those who had chosen their sin over him. And that's, that's all of us. All of us have chosen our sin over Christ. And still, Jesus came for us. He came for us. The wages of our sin, the sin that we chose, the wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. The, the gift of God is Jesus who came and took the cross for our sin. He took our sin upon his shoulders and died in our place. He substituted himself for what we deserved. And so now he took our wages. That wage of sin is now satisfied in Christ. He died our death. And that's great news, but that wouldn't be the greatest news unless he rose from the grave. And I have good news for you. <laughs> He rose from the grave. <laughs> Jesus rose. And so not only did he save you from your sin, not only did he take your place, but in rising from the dead, he made a way for you to be with him forever, for you to have life forever with him. He rose again so that you could be with him. He desires fellowship with you. He desires union with you. And if that's Jesus' mission, to have union with his people, to save the lost sheep, then shouldn't that be our mission too? Church, I, I pray for you that you would have a burden for souls. I wonder, you, you might be here and you might not know the condition of your own soul. You might say, well, I heard you say Jesus substituted himself for me, but I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's applied to me. I don't know if... He's saved me. 
look, I would, I would love to talk to you about that. And I can tell you, I can look around and know there's a lot of faces here who love Jesus deeply and would love to have that conversation with you too. So it might be just grabbing your neighbor and saying, I don't know that I know what Mark means. How can I be saved? I, in just a few minutes, I'm going to be in the back. And if, if you want to talk through that, I would love to talk with you. But here's my challenge to you. If you're not sure the condition of your soul, if you're not sure whether you'll be forever with Jesus because he saved you or forever apart from him, then don't leave today without deciding what you want for your future. Don't leave today. We're about to sing about who Jesus is. We're about to sing that, that he is our king. And, and as our king, we share his mission. It's the goal of our discipleship that we would be on mission with him, surrendering what we want for what he wants. So the questions I want to ask you are, have you surrendered yourself? Have you surrendered your relationships? And have you surrendered your mission? We need you, church. (laughs) We need you for intergenerational and gender-specific discipleship. Don't, Don't lose that God has called you to that. If we are ever hoping for provision to be a healthy church following after Christ, we need older men and women investing in younger men and women. And that, I, I believe that starts early. I, I think if you're a high schooler, you should be investing in people. You should be investing in younger men and women, even in high school. And I believe that until the day you die. Scripture doesn't give us a, an, an exit date. It doesn't give us a retirement date for, for discipleship. Until the day you die, you should be investing in the next generation. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your good design. We thank you that you have created us to be ordered and to follow after you. God, I, I praise you for that, for the gospel, the good news that, that while we were still sinners, you, you came for us. You came and died for us. And I am I'm not worthy of that gift. And no one is. And that's the beauty of it, Father. I, I praise you for the, the mercy and the grace you've showed us by offering salvation to us. God, I thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I pray that as a church, we would live in light of that. That in, in the sound doctrine of, the, of your word, that we would live obedient lives. That we would follow the instructions that Paul gave Titus for older men and older women, God, that that would be true of us and that we would be on mission. God, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.